Today on Circle Back, books. Wholesaling, print-on-demand, library services. Barges. Bulk commodities up and down the Mississippi River system. Long shots. We were like the ancient Spartans. They were told, come back with your shield or on it. And goals. His first goal for Nashville, a big goal for Nashville. I'm the guy that brought Major League Soccer uh, to, to Nashville. The son of one of Tennessee's most influential businesswomen. Anybody that knows my mother knows that she's kind of the patron saint of arts. Who's tried not to make his name his identity. I never wanted to be given anything. I, you know, all I wanted to do was was to work hard and, and contribute and learn and whatever it would be, would be. If you fit in, if you're, you know, if you're a contributor and your name's on the door, it's kind of like people are really excited about having you a part of the whole, the whole thing. Hi, I'm John Ingram. I'm chairman of Ingram Industries and um, Nashville Soccer Club. Left on the surface. A Gary Smith's men on their way to their first win of the From the Chase Studio at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, this is Circle Back, where we trace the life cycle of the startup from big idea to big payoff. I'm your host, Clark Buckner. I work in a big family business, but I'm an entrepreneur. Maybe I was doing high wire acts with a net underneath me, but uh, it wasn't a net I wanted to fall in. I'll say, I'll say that. There are names in Nashville synonymous with success, and one of them is Ingram. I'm the second of four children born to incredibly uh, successful parents. And, you know, that's both a burden and a, and a great role model, too. And I created the own, the own expectations for myself to to work hard, to do my best, to try, and, and you know, both learned it kind of in, as part of family dynamics. That was kind of my, my role. And, and also, I had these role models of parents that were big doers and successful in their own rights and, and people that, you know, we had dinner every night at 7 o'clock. I mean, my dad was a ritual guy. And, you know, it wasn't 6.59. It wasn't 7.01. It was kind of 7 o'clock. The family tree has branches of refinement mixed with the rough and tumble. My mom's parents are from Charleston, South Carolina. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. He was the first guy in South Carolina in television. He owned, he owned the CBS affiliate station, WCSC-TV in Charleston, South Carolina. And when he got into television, he actually made my mom learn how to type because he said, he said, Martha, if, if this television stuff doesn't work, something happens to me, you got to have a skill to support the family. And on my dad's side, they were timber people. They were Scots that came down through Canada and to Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And, you know, they're probably pretty rough and tumble people. But entrepreneurial kind of found their way, you know, ended up getting into the oil business. And then the, the barging business kind of came out of that because it was back in the day when there, there weren't any standards about what you produced. And so the only way you knew wh what you were producing was to really move it yourself.
My grandfather, Ingram, had bought a company. It was called a tufting company, which was early rug making, industrial uh, mechanized rug making, located here in Nashville, Tennessee. And they'd come down here to, you know, see about the tufting company and met people they liked. And they decided, we'll, we'll relocate to Nashville. My father was a guy that if you had something important that you wanted to talk to him about, you'd go make an appointment at his office because in his office, he was willing to listen. When I was 14, 15 years old, I mean, he sat the three of us down. I'll never forget one of our couches at home and explained to us that going forward, it was in the springtime. And he said, look, you know, going forward, I just want you to know half the summer's yours and half's mine. And you're going to go work here and you're going to go work there and you're going to go do this. And, you know, I started my first job at 14 or 15 packing books in the warehouse. He wanted us to learn the value of work and was not interested in raising a bunch of 'er ne'er-do-wells. Because of business books were everywhere and John hit them hard at Nashville's premier boys' school, Montgomery Bell Academy. MBA is one of the best examples I can say of branding. Anybody that goes there can tell you that the motto is gentleman, scholar, athlete, okay? I mean, that's the expectations. You're gonna work hard in school and then, you know, be as good an athlete as you can be. And my experience there was quite formative. I mean, I went on to become an English major at Princeton I was as ready and prepared academically as any of the kids from the Eastern prep schools. You'd probably expect an Ingram to slide right behind a big desk at the family business right out of college. I went right into business school. I went to Vanderbilt Business School. And the the dean of the Owen School, Sam Richmond, was actually on the Ingram board. So I, I knew Sam pretty well. It was starting to become more of a thing that you went and worked for a couple years somewhere and you went to business school afterwards if you went to business school. And, and But in talking to Sam, Sam's like, hell, John, you know, you have a front row seat that a lot of other people don't see. You already get to see a lot. You don't have to go do that unless you want to. Actually, I find it funny today that I was an accounting major in business school, which I, I, I think, you know, is probably the furthest from my true north or, you know, who I really am. But, but it's useful, you know, it's useful to know what goes into a balance sheet and an income statement and, and how things fit. But me being an accountant, I, w- I would laugh about that today. I, I felt like I wanted to be in the family business eventually, but I didn't know if I wanted to maybe go have another experience somewhere else first. And I, you know, I toyed with it. I interviewed with banks, commercial banks, investment banks, that kind of stuff. But then at the end of the day, when I really looked at it, I thought, okay, John, you can go work 80 to 100 hours a week and pack somebody else's bag to go to meetings. Or guess what? If you go to work at Ingram, and I had an opportunity in our treasury area to come in as like assistant to the treasurer, I could pack the bag and go to the meeting myself. Coming up, 
the English major gravitates towards books at a time when the entire industry will be rewritten. I had a chance to go out and run uh, one of our little book operations, a little company called Tennessee Book Company, which was actually the company that was the start of all of our distribution businesses. I was replacing a guy who was getting ready to retire that had run the company for over 40 years. 40. Before you can appreciate John's role in the book business, you've got to know a bit about its bird. You might say Ingram Book was born to stave off a man's boredom. My father had an extra office and let uh, this guy, Jack Stambaugh, come into his office. And, you know, he just noticed that Jack was just sitting around reading the paper all day. Jack had been vice chancellor at Vanderbilt University. And my father said, look, you know, Jack, if you go find a business you like, I'll go buy half of it with you. And the business that Mr. Stambaugh found was Tennessee Book Company. At the Tennessee Book Company, things have been running smoothly but running the old-fashioned way. Everything we did in this business was manual. I mean, it was all manual. I was like, okay, that does not work for me. Ended up hiring a very competent guy to kind of come in and put in a really competent computer system so that we could manage things in a much more modern way. And that, that helped things immensely. And the business did well. And I was there, I think, about two years, got this done and got another call from, from my father, you know, went down to go see him, and he said, John, you know, we're all pleased with what you're doing and would, would love to talk to you about adding another part of the book company to your portfolio. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, I'm just not that interested in that. We had a small but fast-growing microcomputer distribution business and a video distribution business. They were outgrowths of the book company. And in the early 80s, Apple Computer was a young but growing company. IBM created the XT, the first personal computer, you know, somewhere in, I think, the early 80s. So there were these businesses that were growing in this microcomputer area. And at the same time, pre-recorded videotapes were also kind of hitting the market. Home, home theater, home movies. And all this stuff was swirling around. And our folks thought that the bookstore might be the place that all these products were sold. And so we got into them thinking that this was ways to expand our book operation. And so there were really both offensive reasons for doing it. We, you know, we could maybe expand, but there's also defense. It's kind of like, well, what happens if somebody is successful selling microcomputer software and then they turn around and add books to it? We'll be screwed. You know, I mentioned earlier that I, I wasn't really interested at that time in taking over another piece of the book company, but I was pretty darn interested in the thought of moving to Southern California as a, you know, 26, seven year old single guy and learning about the microcomputer business. At the time, the Ingram Holding Company owned a computer business. But John, again, wanted to learn rather than take over. I moved out to Southern California, and I, you know, I went from being president of this company to I was a director of purchasing at Ingram Micro. And, 
you know, had a team of buyers and was there to learn. Think about having a chance to make that decision all over again and pick the other side. That's what this was like. Because as much as the name on the door was Ingram, the culture was the culture of a whole different company. I mean, this was getting to be a big and bigger and more important part of what we were doing. And, you know, my dad having one of his kids out in the middle of it, I, I think he thought that was a very good idea. But it was growing fast. I mean, you know, it was growing 30, 40, 50 percent a year. You know, it, it was great to get dropped into that milieu. I mean, it was a little bit of the Wild West. Um, you know, I was in purchasing and, you know, dealing with a bunch of vendors. And these were young but successful technology companies in, in many cases, a lot of them software related at the time. I worked there four years. Uh, I spent two years in Southern California. That's a pretty nice place to be. And then uh, I moved in January of 1993, I moved to Europe, to Brussels. Um, ostensibly, my job was to, we were going to build uh, regional warehouses, a regional warehouse and transportation system. And you have to remember, well, even today, Europe is Europe when it comes to the Ryder Cup or, you know, other big events where they can team up against the United States or China or something like that. Who they are otherwise is they're Belgians or they're French or they're Germans or they're Brits. But being dumb Americans, we were thinking, okay, why do we have to have a warehouse in Belgium, in Holland, and in France when we don't do that in Tennessee, Alabama, and Mississippi. You know, it was like we'd have one that serves that whole region. When a manager at their operation in the Netherlands was fired for stealing, John naively said he'd take over there too. I didn't know any better. A hot mess is what it was. I mean, the whole thing was a mess. And I'm sitting there going, okay, what in the world, what do I do here? You know, I, I kind of need a whole team. And so I started calling th some of my friends at, at some of the other countries starting to beg people. I mean, you know, I got a sales manager from Canada, you know, the purchasing director from somewhere and different people to kind of come in and both teach our Dutch colleagues how to do things right as well as to kind of get better control over what we were doing. And at the same time, I'm trying to figure out what do we do with this long term? Then came an opportunity for an acquisition. I got introduced to a guy who had a, a complimentary business. He was actually the largest HP printer distributor in Holland. And his business was a perfect complement to what we had. And he had a really good management team. The problem was he'd sold his business once and got totally screwed and had fight and clawed and bought it back. So he was really nervous about potentially selling it again. When he faced the board, including his mother and father, a new confidence emerged. I remember my father kind of complaining about, oh, you know, we got to pay a premium for this. And we'd been buying other things at discounts and and getting the consequences of it, you know, messes to clean up. And I remember looking at him and 
I was tired and, and I knew this was my ticket out and and I knew it was the right thing to do. And I just looked at him, I said, Dad, I said, we're paying a premium because it's not a piece of crap like this other stuff we've been buying. And I never spoke to him that way. And it kind of startled him, but I think it, in a certain sense, he was like, okay. And so we bought it and I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that they took it over and it was you know, our best performing business for like the next four or five years in all the companies we had in Europe. He and I talked about me staying maybe two years in Europe and two years was coming up and, and it had been really hard. I mean, still it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done, at least physically. I mean, it's just really difficult and things were looking better. And I remember, I remember saying, Dad, you know, I've just worked so hard and I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. I don't think it's a train. I think I think there's actual some light. And I said, you know, I, I really think I'd like to stay longer and work on this more. Unfortunately, literally about a month later, uh, I, I was back, um, I, I went back to um, the States for Thanksgiving. My father didn't look well, he didn't feel well. About a week after that, I, I had actually been invited. I was back in Europe. I'd been invited to go to go skiing with um, some vendors. I was in the bar, you know, having a drink after dinner or something like that. And a woman came in and said, "Is there a John Ingram here?" And I was like, "Well, that's me." She said, "You have a phone call." And it was my mother calling to tell me my father was really sick. I went in Monday morning when I got back and told my boss, a guy named John Winklehouse, who was running um, Ingram Micro Europe at the time. I said, I said, John, I, I need to go home to go see what's going on. And I went back the next day and it was pretty clear, you know, things weren't good. My father wasn't what it wasn't good and and I ended up moving back I mean I moved back I moved back by Christmas and and I moved into the book business um, which I started in January of 1995 as uh, I was in charge of basically sales for our book company literally a month after that one of our sales salespeople who worked for me our West Coast sales manager was in Nashville and and he came he dropped by my office and he said John you went to Princeton right I said yeah he said did you know um, a guy named Jeff Bezos I said no he said well well he went to Princeton and he's getting ready to start a business selling books on the World Wide Web and I looked at my guy and I said art what's the World Wide Web you know, I'd never heard of it. And, you know, I went and I met Jeff Bezos when he had eight people working for him. And and he his operations were like a showroom in the slum areas of Seattle. And I remember he had two servers that were running the place. And one was named Ernie and one was named Bert. I remember going back to Nashville and I'm thinking, you know, 
if this works, this, this could be big. When we come back, enter a new Ingram Industries. Parts of it, public, and a new idea about warehousing and selling books. You could see how print-on-demand would work, right? I mean, it was starting to happen. take a quick moment and invite you to listen to one of our new shows, Twin Day. It's all about rethinking entrepreneurship. In Kiswahili, Twin Day means let's go. And it's our rally cry here at the EC for founders of color. This show shares the name with our statewide program dedicated to leveling the playing field for black and Latinx founders. We'll bring in guests to engage in open and honest conversations with incredible Black and Latinx business experts, investors, and other successful founders located throughout Tennessee and other parts of the United States. In each episode, you'll hear from successful founders and entrepreneurial innovators of color who take the time to circle back to share peaks and valleys of their journeys. We'll also illuminate the hurdles and opportunities that exist within the larger world of startups venture capital, and business more broadly. Join us and get the latest updates at ec.co slash podcast. Now, back to the show. My father was large and in charge, and, and um, you know, it was... It was, I mean, it's traumatic to lose a parent. It's traumatic, you know, for a business to lose a leader like that. And, you know, we, we spent a couple of years kind of, you know, sorting out how things were going to work. There was never a Alexander Haig moment of, you know, when Reagan gets shot of, I'm in charge around here. You know, um, my older brother and, and I became co-presidents. My younger brother... He had the video distribution business, and he spun that out, so he went his, his own way. And my sister was with it for a while, and we eventually bought her out. So it's like that great philosopher Mike Tyson said, you know, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth, right? You know, you get hit in the mouth, you got to figure out what you're going to do. Bronson Ingram died in June of 1995 at the age of 63. Barges and books had made him very wealthy. Well, 1995, you know, Ingram Book Company was a wholesaler of books, primarily. Wholesaler meant we, we bought books from publishers, we turned around and sold them to, to bookstores. Bookstores bought books both directly from publishers because uh, they could get better terms buying directly, but they also bought from wholesalers because wholesalers had great breadth. And... You know, bookstores couldn't always predict accurately what books to have in stock, right? So, so having wholesalers was really important. But most stores probably bought 10 to 20% from wholesale. We're the long tail. Long tail is a business strategy that allows companies to profit by selling low volumes of hard-to-find items to lots of people, instead of selling only big quantities of the most popular goods. We were the long tail, and we had built systems around doing it well so that most of the orders came in electronically. 
And when they come in electronically, where you are in the demand sequence of how customers shop really mattered. And we were good at getting people to put us near the top of where they shopped. And that way, you know, when they order, you know, if you have it, you get to sell it. In July of 95, Jeff Bezos became an online bookseller in Amazon. Bezos will uncover the demand. John Ingram is set to fix the supply. The core value proposition of the wholesale company was having lots of books and having them quickly available to bookstores, virtual or otherwise. I remember going to a, um, there was a Xerox machine on the floor, I think, of, of a book trade show or something like that. And I just thought, wow, rather than wallpaper in our warehouses with books, I got no idea whether we need or not. Wouldn't it be great if we could figure out how to store books virtually and then make them when people want them? My inspiration in, in many regards was Michael Dell and Dell Computer. Dude, you're getting a Dell. Easy to buy, easy to own, easy as Dell. Uh, it used to be that IBM, Compaq, HP, all these people would make computers. You'd go buy them, right? And technology changes so fast that, you know, but almost by the time that computers were made, there were new upgrades of different things to go in there. There's a time when this thing was sweet. I'm not sure when exactly. But now this relic is, um, shall we say, past its prime, sort of like your old computer. Right now. Well, Dell took a totally different approach. Dell's approach was Dell sold you a computer, then they went out back and made it, right? So if you think about it, what we do with Lightning, it was kind of like Dell for books. We'll sell you the book, and then we'll go make it. And if we can figure out how to make it and ship it to you as if it were sitting on the shelf, what do you care? As long as the quality is what you expect. Inside the company, direct book downloads and lightning print on demand was referred to as John's toy. You know, once we make a big investment to be able to do full ebook downloads in addition to print on demand, the full ebook downloads, the market just didn't really happen, wasn't, wasn't ready. Uh, print-on-demand still is growing, but still an investment stage. And, you know, it was pretty – it was hard then. I mean, people were like, you know, how is this going to be successful? And, and you know, I was like, well, I, I just – we're going to keep working at it. From, say, 2001 to 2004 was where Lightning went from John's little toy to John's problem, and what the hell are you going to do to fix it? About the time John Ingram started experimenting with digital printing, the entire bookselling industry had started to consolidate. That meant Ingram's primary customers, the mom-and-pop bookstores that relied so heavily on Ingram distribution, were going out of business. Superstores took off, and Ingram was facing extinction as well. I mean, wholesalers have a happier time in a world where you've got lots of suppliers and lots of customers. If we were only going to have a few customers, that was going to get to be problematic. There was thought of selling out to Barnes & Noble. In 1998, a meeting with Barnes & Noble, and at the time, Barnes & Noble was run by a guy named Lynn Riccio. He also owned a private company called Missouri Book Services, and they were probably the largest uh, supplier of used, new and used textbooks. So it was not the same business, but a close business. And... We were actually looking at potentially 
bringing together the textbook business with uh, the tradebook business. And we're up in New York talking to Lynn about that, and then he kind of broadens the subject and it's like, well, hey, what about Barnes & Noble buying Ingram? A vertical merger because Barnes & Noble didn't do any wholesaling and we didn't do any any retail. And we ultimately decided, I decided, that if you're going to do something, you couldn't, like, let them buy 30% of the business because you'd get 100% of the negative blowback from, you'd lose every other customer, right? Other people wouldn't want to deal with a competitor. So if you're going to get 100% of the negative reaction, you, you might as well get 100% of whatever's good about it. And so we ended up entering a transaction to sell Ingram Book Company. I mean, at the time, independent booksellers went berserk and were really unhappy about it. You, you had Amazon, Borders, other people out building more warehouses. They were going to build more, and we were watching all this. And we enter this process. People complain. Other booksellers, others complain. The Federal Trade Commission decides to do a second request, which is kind of putting you through their torture chamber. And then ultimately, uh, the FTC decided that, you know, even though this was a vertical deal, not a horizontal deal, in this case, they kind of created their own view that, in effect, Ingram was too important to the rest of the book trade to allow this transaction to happen, to be, to be under Barnes & Noble's control. Felt like Luke Skywalker having gone over to the dark side. I mean, I think it's probably the best way to, to describe how I was portrayed. And it was a hell of an experience. And the experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. The worst part about it was we didn't solve the problem. Actually, in many ways, it was worse because in the in the interim, while we while we were futzing with the Federal Trade Commission and whatnot, you know, you had other customers out building warehouse capacity or competitors trying to steal accounts from you, and and you know, it was it was tough coming out the backside of this. Ingram was yet again at a crossroads. However, a major development was starting to emerge in the book industry once again, and John's foresight was about to pay off in ways he could never have imagined. In the early 2000s, Jeff Bezos' little startup was fast becoming the new dominant force in book retailing, and the fix was right around the corner. You could see how print-on-demand would work, right? I mean, it was starting to happen. We are starting to get to be, have enough scale, enough capability, that the economics were starting to work. Remember that long tail? That part of book demand comprised of non-bestsellers, old titles, small demand books, what had typically been out-of-print books. Well, about that same time, on-demand printing of books was actually becoming economical. Amazon uncovered that the total market for the long tail was actually larger than that for bestsellers. And nobody was more well-suited to supply this segment than Ingram. And all of a sudden, I start hearing people talking about our print-on-demand business. And I'm sitting there going, what do you mean, our? I really kind of since learned, and it's become a powerfully important thing, that 
that I own failure and we're going to share success. It took us seven years to get to be profitable. And we've had multiple iterations of technology. I mean, it is a tech company. It is a high-tech company that's just solved some inventory management issues in the book business. Ingram Book not only survived, it thrived. Sales eventually doubled from that low point after the failed merger. And now, at more than $2.5 billion in revenue, Ingram Book is larger and more profitable than ever. In many ways, you can say the two Princeton grads are the bookends of the business. Jeff Bezos uncovered the demand, and John Ingram figured out the supply. People can go out and buy printers. They can go out and buy bonders. They can go out and buy paper cutters. You go buy all that stuff. But good luck knitting this together with 15 million titles, making 70 million units a year, you know, average run length of two units across multiple countries and and production environments. It's non-trivial. And that's an understatement. Think about it. Who could have known that a giant like Amazon would actually need an Ingram to fill its long-tail demand? And the middle son, John, who has always thirsted to learn while he worked, emerges as a true entrepreneur. I work in a big family business, but I'm an entrepreneur. Welcome to this grand occasion. Zach, Ellis, Brown, Walker, Cardin, Bird. 12, 15 years ago, I, I was invited to be the commencement speaker at NBA. And I was flattered to be to be invited, although I was like, what in the world have I got to say, you know, that hadn't been said much more eloquently so many more times. I really kind of sweated about it. And then kind of out of the blue, one of my good friends sent me the excerpts from a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, written by a hospice nurse from Australia. She kept seeing these themes repeated in end-of-life care. I wish I'd picked a life that was right for me, not some life someone picked for me. I wish I'd stayed better connected to friends and family. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I had had the courage to say the things that were really my truth. And then finally, I wish I just allowed myself to be happier. Now, I don't know whether I influenced any kids or parents, but what I do know is it had a profound influence on me. And I really made a commitment to myself that I was gonna work hard to be intentional about the way I live the the rest of my life such that at the end of my life, whenever that would be, I would try to minimize regrets. The soccer thing comes along. I thought it fit me. Number two, I, I thought my kids and other family members would enjoy this. And it was something that I could do with them for the rest of my life that we would enjoy and could do together. Third, I thought we were catching soccer at the right moment, that it was coming and that it was really, it was going to come this time. Nashville is a place where we now speak uh, over a hundred different languages, but guess what? We all speak soccer. (laughs) 
and, and, and we're about to become a lot more fluent in the language of the beautiful game. Thank you, Nashville. We have done something very special. Thank you. We put together an ownership group. We bought control of the minor league team. We showed that with friendlies that soccer was popular here in, in Nashville. And then, we, you know, kind of the biggest thing is we got a stadium deal approved. And we did all of this really in 364 days. The Tennessean announced our participation December 21st, um, 2016. Uh, the commissioner and his group came to Nashville on December 20th, uh, 2017 to confer the club to us. 364 days. Nashville, we did it. I think if you don't have a successful family life, I'm not sure all the rest of this stuff is as wonderful. I mean, I've, I've got a wonderful wife that loves me and children that love me and seem to be, you know, mostly on good paths. And so without that, um, there'd be a certain hollowness to this, to some of these other things. Putting that in its place for a moment, I think winning an MLS Cup here for Nashville would be a pretty exciting thing. listening. Be sure to subscribe at ec.co slash circleback and follow, rate, and review the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Circleback is made possible by the generous support of the Beth and Randy Chase family. Also, a thank you to our media partner, the Nashville Post. Keep your pulse on all things Nashville business and more by subscribing to their newsletter at nashvillepost.com. And a shout out to our friends at Lightning 100 for supporting the show. A big thanks to our team, from our creator and executive producer, Greg Allen. Script writing by Demetria Kaladimos. And a big thank you to the rest of the EC staff. I'm Clark Buckner, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Circle Back. Circle Back.